could grab your Bibles again, we'll be in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, looking at verse 17. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather as your people to hear from your holy word. We pray for your spirit to grant and illumine our minds to understand what it says, what it means, and how to apply it to our lives, that we may live holy lives that are pleasing to you. We pray that you would work now in our hearts to understand what it is that you want to teach us, that we may follow you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 4, verse 17 reads, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I've titled this sermon, Holy Living. Holy Living. The Christian life is about knowing who God is by knowing what God says in his word and aligning one's life and submitting one's life to obey his word and his will for the glory of God. That involves pursuing holiness. That involves striving towards godly living. That involves laboring and making every effort to flee from temptation and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That involves working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That involves being diligent to make certain his calling and choosing of you. That involves displaying a faith that works, a faith that is active and displayed and demonstrated. It involves living a transformed life. James's focus is on holy living. He wants us to grow into Christian maturity. He desires that we become more and more like Christ, and he calls us to walk according to not the wisdom of this world, but according to heavenly wisdom from above, God's wisdom as he's given us in his word. And so he addresses our hearts because holiness is a matter of the heart. That is how true change and transformation happens. It happens at the heart level, not at the behavior level. By the grace of God, his spirit is working within us to grow us and perfect us through our obedience to his word and will. It involves our participation. It involves our obedience and striving after the pursuit of holiness True life change, again, happens at the heart level. It's not just about changing our external actions and behavior because we know the source of sin comes from within our own hearts. And so we must have the proper understanding of what sin is and how widespread sin is in our lives. It ought to humble us and cause us to draw near to God and rely and trust upon his sufficient and abundant grace. He provides us with a greater grace. It ought to help us to see and feel the weight of the price that was paid by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon the cross as we recognize how sinful we really are, how much we fall short of his perfect glory. It ought to help us to see in a greater way his amazing grace, his amazing love for us, a love that is unchanging, a love that is keeping us, a love that will never forsake us, a love that is going to take us to glory. Do we have too low a view of sin? Do we have too low a view of sin? James says, to one who knows the right thing to do, that's everything that we know, 
according to the scriptures, of what is good and right to do in the eyes of God and does not do it, to him it is sin. Do we think that just because we know the right and good thing to do and when we don't do it, that that is sin? Or do we only think of sin as not doing the wrong thing? Do we have too low a view of sin? James has just talked about having too low a view of God when it comes to planning, that it could lead to having the wrong perspective about who God is, that he's not really in control, but you're in control, about who you are and about all of life. You think that you're in control, you start presumptuously planning and producing the outcomes that you want rather than depending and trusting upon the Lord. James was teaching us that we need to have and live out of a Christian perspective, a biblical, God-driven, God-motivated, God-directed worldview, that that is to be the lens through which we are to view and interact with all of life and how we are to plan our lives, knowing the fragility and uncertainty of our lives, and knowing and trusting in the sovereignty of God and his providence over all things, that if the Lord wills, it will happen. And our focus is not to be on what we don't know and can't know, the future, but rather as we plan wisely to do so humbly, submitted to the Lord, obeying his revealed will for us in his word and trusting and depending upon him as he providentially works out his perfect plan in and through our lives. So we are to know that if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And knowing that, James says in verse 17, If you know the right thing to do and don't do it to you, it is sin. This is about obedience and sin. This is about holy living. Do we, again, have too low a view of sin? And another question, do we have too low a view of obedience? Having the proper understanding of both will put us on the right track for holy living and growing into Christian maturity. The Bible has 1,189 chapters in it. Four of them don't deal directly with sin and sinners. Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, Revelation 21 and 22, describing the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. In a way, the Bible is a comprehensive book about the comprehensiveness of human depravity, thus shining a spotlight on the comprehensiveness of the glory and grace of God. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So therefore, the greatest sin is a failure to obey the greatest commandment to love the Lord with the totality of who you are. Think about it. That's not a sin of action. That's a sin of omission that we commit all the time. We don't love the Lord our God with all of our hearts all the time, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. That's the extent of our total depravity. That's the extent of our sinfulness. We're not as active in our sanctification as we should be. We're not as aggressive in our pursuit of godliness as we should be. We don't love God and others as we should. This is where the battle for holiness is. And it's there the rest of our lives until our glorification. Sin affects more of your life than you think. Now think about what Christ has done in your place. Do we understand fully and completely the forgiveness that we've been, that we've received from Him? 
Do we understand the full extent of his grace and his mercy? We might not because we might not understand the full weight of our, our sins and how totally depraved we really are and how much we do actually sin against the Lord. The sin of omission is disregarding or ignoring or not doing what God has said to do. It's knowing the right thing to do but not doing it. We can often think of sin only in terms of what has been called sins of commission. Sins of commission. This is doing what God has said not to do or not doing the wrong thing. Right? We don't want to do the wrong thing. And so that's all we focus on. Such as not lying, not stealing, not coveting, not showing partiality. But we also commit sins of omission, such as not caring for the needy, especially within the body of Christ. Or not making disciples as we go about our lives we're not practicing and living out the one another's or any area where we are not doing what God has said to do. In all of those areas, in all of those ways that we're not doing what he has said for us to do and we know that it's good and right, all of those areas are sin. Sins of omission. That's the extent of our sinfulness. It's not just, I'm obeying what God has said not to do and so I'm not sinning. That's how we normally characterize how we're doing with the Lord. Well, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm not a cheater. I'm not stealing. I'm not an adulteress. I'm not uh, committing murder. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But are you living for the Lord? Are you seeking to please him from your heart with everything that you do? We can focus too much on what we are not to do that we don't do what we know we are to do. Because you think that's what God wants. That's what God requires. He just don't do the bad things. He actually calls us not to do the bad things and also to do what he has called us to do, the good things. And this can lead to legalism or a false understanding of what Christianity is. Give me rules so I know what I'm not supposed to do. Is it okay if I smoke weed? Is it okay if I wear this outfit? These questions can lead down the path of defining sin just as not doing what God has said not to do, not doing the wrong thing. And oftentimes that can warp our understanding of what true Christianity is. You can ask a young believer or, or any fellow brother or sister, why are you a Christian? They, they might answer, because I don't do this. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't do this. I don't do that. Their answers normally aren't because I love God from my heart. I obey him in these areas. We don't focus on sin as the things that we know we are to do, but don't do. We just focus on sin as the things that we do wrong and we're not supposed to do. But not doing what you're supposed to do is also sin. And this is what James is talking about here. He said in chapter 1, verses 19 to 25, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. 
In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 48, in the parable of the master and the slaves who are to be faithful and ready for the Lord's return, it says there, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. Why? Because it's the sin of omission. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Knowledge without obedience is sin. Knowledge without obedience is sin. We see this in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. It says there, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked or and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison or, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice that people are cast into eternal hell, not because of what they did, but because of what they didn't do. They didn't feed the hungry, clothe the naked, show hospitality, demonstrate and display mercy and compassion and love to those around them who are in need. Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Doing the will of God involves obeying what he has told us to do not just abstaining from doing what he has told us not to do. In other words, sin is not just to be viewed as abstaining from bad things. It's also the lack of the active pursuit of obeying God's will, doing what he has told us to do. Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 38, says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' righteousness is seen in his actions. He didn't just abstain from evil. He actively demonstrated his righteousness through all of his words, through all of his actions, through all of his deeds. So in this verse, James explains how sin involves both our inactions, what we don't do, and our actions, what we do, so that we would understand that sin affects us more than we think. So that we would understand that sin affects us more than we think. This is a call to Christians for greater obedience. This is a call to Christians for greater obedience as we recognize what sin is. 
And as those who are to love what God loves and hate what God hates, understanding this ought to promote and compel us to holy living, to the pursuit of holiness and godliness and sanctification. This is the biblical perspective that we are to have in regards to how we view and respond to sin and how we view and respond to God's will. So what is the sin of omission according to James? We'll first look at verse 17, the beginning, the right knowledge, the right knowledge. He says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do. This is addressed to those who know what the right thing to do is, to those who have the right knowledge of what God requires, to those who know God's will for them as revealed in his word. And then going back to what we covered last week in verse 16, why is there boasting in arrogance evil? Why is there presumptuous planning wrong? Why is there self-sufficiency sinful? Verse 17, because they know the right thing to do and are not living and responding according to it. What is the right thing? To acknowledge and to depend upon and trust in God's will as they obey his revealed will. Focus on what they know, obeying his word as they trust and depend upon him on what God hasn't revealed to them yet. That is the right thing to do in this context to these people that he's writing to. The right thing refers to that which is excellent and good and praiseworthy. It's what is acceptable worship. It's what we are to do. And James says, to one who knows the right thing to do, to do. And to do is a present active infinitive, meaning that what is involved is not merely an intellectual understanding, but an active doing of the good. It's not just knowing, it's knowing and obeying. Consider this as you think about your own sanctification or your submission to Christ or in the area of sexual purity, or suffering for Christ, or your service to the body, and every other area of your life where you know the right thing to do. Let's not take away from the fact that knowing the right thing to do, knowing what is good and excellent and praiseworthy, having the right knowledge according to the scriptures, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It shouldn't cause us to think, well, the less I know then the less I have to do. I don't have to obey as much. Wrong. That's false thinking. And that may be an indication of a deeper heart issue that has to do with whether you truly love God and have a heart that desires to know Him and please Him and live for Him. The more we know of God, the more we can grow in our worship of Him, the more we can glorify Him with our lives. So it's faulty thinking if you're just looking to get out of doing as much as you can to live for the Lord. That's a wrong understanding of knowledge. That's a wrong understanding of sin. Because James says the things that you don't do, that you know you are to do, is sin. It's also a wrong understanding of obedience. And so that leads to the next part of verse 17, the wrong response. The wrong response. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What is the wrong response? According to James, it's a lack of obedience. A lack of taking what you know, the truth of God's word and will, and applying it to your everyday life. That's a lack of wisdom. And what James, and what does James say that is? When you fail to live out what you know you are to do. End of verse 17. 
It's sin. It's sin. This is talking about the person who knows the will of God and fails to do it. You might be thinking, I know a lot about God's word. And so I know a lot about what God's will is for me. Am I really responsible and accountable to do all of it? Both the things that I'm not supposed to do and the things that I am supposed to do. The answer is yes. Yes. If not, it is sin. Do you see how we commit sins of omission all the time? Yet we only focus on the things that we're we're avoiding and not pursuing as sinful. Let's think about why someone would know the right thing to do and not do it. James has already answered that for us. And it's a hard truth for us to hear. It's because of our sinful pride. It's because of the worldliness in our hearts. It's because of our self-sufficient attitude that wants to please ourselves more than it wants to please the Lord. Because in order to obey God, we have to completely submit to God. We have to resist the devil and trust and depend upon God and humble ourselves before him. We have to make it less about us and all about him. Let's think about this in the area of evangelism when talking to unbelievers. And let's think about this in the area of speaking the truth in love when talking to believers who may be in sin. In both of these areas, it could be very hard for us to engage in, even though we know the right thing to do. We have the right knowledge. But why would we fail to do it? Perhaps because we don't know how people will respond, and we don't want to offend them. The gospel is an offensive message. Or we don't want people to hate us. Christ said, if they hated me, they will hate you. Or we don't want to potentially suffer for Christ's sake. We don't want to put ourselves in that position to maybe go to jail or get hurt. We are to be witnesses, those who testify of the Lord's goodness and who he is, what he's done, and that salvation is found in him alone. There's no such thing as a silent witness. You can't testify if you're not saying anything. Or we don't want to do anything that will affect the relationship, so we are willing to overlook sin and that which dishonors the Lord. And this is especially hard when it comes to close friends or even family members. But we have to be reminded of Jesus' words in Mark 3. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asks. Whoever does the will of God. Jesus places the spiritual family over his physical family. And again in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He does not mean hate literally, but rather your love for them in comparison to your love for Christ. Because he is to have first place in everything. He is to be preeminent. He is to be above all because Christ is above all. Because he is Lord. And of course, this is to be done with gentleness and wisdom and prayer, seeking to keep relational peace, but not at the expense of speaking the truth in love and allowing someone to go the wrong way without proper counsel when you know what the right and better way is, which is the way that is in accordance with God's word and will. When you may have, may God, when God may have placed you in that person's life, 
at that particular time, in that particular circumstance, for a particular purpose. What is holy living? It's set apart for Christ's living. It's living distinctly for the Lord. Do you truly love God? Do you truly love that person? Is your fear of man greater than your fear of the Lord? Isn't it more important that we are pleasing to the Lord? Obeying the Lord, loving the Lord, doing His will. That's characteristic of being in the family of Christ. We even read it from Acts chapter 5. It's better to obey God than men. Jesus said in John thirteen seventeen, in the context of washing the disciples' feet, if you know these things, these things referring to demonstrating love and being a humble servant to all, he says, you are blessed if you do them. You are blessed if you do them. Also, it's clear to note that sins of omission are usually not isolated from sins of commission and usually lead to them. The wrong response to knowing the right thing to do is not to do it because that is sin. The right thing in this context, again, is to acknowledge and to depend upon and trust in God's unrevealed sovereign will. Have you sinned by not acknowledging and depending upon or trusting in God's will? There's a connection between knowledge, obedience, and affections of the heart. I know what to do up here in my head, but I don't feel it right here in my heart. What do I do? The answer usually is look to Christ. And the answer is look to Christ. Look to Christ. Meditate upon the gospel. Fill your mind with the things of Christ. Dwell on those things. Look to who God is. Focus on his love for you. Recognize on the the amazing forgiveness for your sins. Reflect on how sinful you really are and your heart will be filled with greater affections that are truth-determined and truth-driven because God's truth is life-transforming. It's heart-changing. It produces joyful obedience. Proverbs 4, verse 23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And the word heart there refers to thoughts. It's your thinking. How are you thinking? your thoughts, your plans, your purposes. So we have to think rightly if we are to respond rightly. And so we must think rightly about Christ. We must think rightly about who God is and what he has done. We must think rightly about who we are and how sinful we really are. God's word is to inform our thinking. And God's word is to be the perspective and worldview in which we filter everything through and live by. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 says, We are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To take your thoughts captive for Christ is to go to war with your thoughts and to capture what is true and allow what is true to affect your heart and lead you to joyful obedience in Christ. As that happens, you will find yourself delighting in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As you delight yourself in the Lord, his delight will become your delight and the desires of your heart will become more aligned with his desires and become your desires. That's why he says, I will give you the desires of your heart. 
because therefore your desires will be aligned with his desires. This is the path to holy living. This is how you will grow in sanctification. Obedience to God's word and will as you look to him and draw near to him and humble yourself before him. And as you see more and more of your sinfulness and respond to it rightly, you understand and experience more of his grace and love, which will in turn grow your love for him and your desire to live for him more. This desire and active pursuit to do the will of God is characteristic of saving faith, a faith that works. Being united to Christ doesn't mean we rest and watch and avoid, but rather that we live and labor and serve to please the Lord. God saves us to use us to do his will. James doesn't want us to be confused about how we are to grow in Christian maturity, how we are to pursue holiness and sanctification. And it's been said that in the new birth, believers do not merely receive a desire to do God's will, but they also receive the grace to be able to do it. For Christians, God's commands are both desirable and doable. And this includes commands to confess and to turn from and to put off and to repent of. When it comes to sin, we're not just to deal with sin defensively by not doing, abstaining, and guarding, but we are also to deal with sin offensively by putting on, by practicing, by prioritizing godly habits and disciplines and make it a pattern and part of our lives. If we're continually in the habit of being in the Word and praying and fellowshipping with the saints and being encouraged by our brothers and sisters in Christ, it helps us to walk the path rightly and to sin less in our lives so that we can resist the devil in our active pursuit of holiness. Again, we have to fill our minds with truth and strive to walk in obedience. When it comes to sin, it's not just doing what we're not supposed to do, but it's also not doing what we're supposed to do according to the word of God. Not doing what we're supposed to do. And there are two things that we need to make clear in our thinking and understanding on top of thinking rightly about sin, and it's tied to our salvation and obedience. First, we don't do things to earn favor or acceptance from God. That's works righteousness. That's false. We don't earn our approval from God by doing things. That's not Christianity. We don't do things in order to be saved. Our justification before God does not depend upon us. It is dependent upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. We are fully and completely justified in Christ, declared righteous because of his perfect righteousness, the moment God grants us new life to repent and believe in him. That never changes. No sinful person's work will ever save them. If works could save you, Jesus didn't have to die. You could save yourself. And secondly, we will not be judged for what we know necessarily, but we will be judged according to our deeds, what we do in relation to what we know. And these two things are not a contradiction. This is a constant lesson that James has been emphasizing and teaching us, which is we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works, to live out a true transformed heart, out of a truly transformed heart. And it has to do with putting on display the sovereignty and grace and mercy and power of God as we are being transformed and live holy lives for all to see. How much do you want to be used by the Lord? How much do you want to glorify God with your life? 
What is preventing you from doing that more so that sin decreases and righteousness increases in your life so that God's God is displayed more and more through your life? There's a song called Take My Life. It says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. This message from James about the sin of omission helps us to see how much we truly sin against the Lord. But it also ought to help us to see more of the Lord's grace and favor upon us. And ought to motivate us and compel within our hearts this affection for the Lord and what Christ has done for us. That we have been freed from this bondage of sin. The punishment has been fully satisfied in Him. He's resurrected, displaying His power over sin and death. We have this freedom now to obey Christ with all of who we are in every area of our lives. And so the love that we see in his death on our behalf, in light of how sinful we are and how sinful we continue to be, and even what we're not even aware of, that Christ paid for it all, ought to help us to live holy lives, help us to pursue him with greater diligence and labor and love, ought to impact how we live our lives. Holy living is to the glory of God. And that is why we ought to pursue it. Again, if, if pursuing a, a holy life or growing in sanctification is, is a burden, if it's difficult, if it's something you don't want to do, if it's something that you don't desire, if it's something that you really don't care about, you just care about not doing the wrong things, then there's a bigger question you must ask. There's a greater heart evaluation that you must do because that is not characteristic of a genuine believer. A genuine believer, born again by the Spirit of God, loves God, desires to do His will, desires to be more like Christ, desires to please Him, desires to turn away from sin, desires to to not just do the wrong things, but also do what is right. And so this message helps us to Understand sin more completely, understand obedience more completely, understand our forgiveness more completely, and I pray that it would lead to a greater worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks directly to our hearts and our minds, and that it's your very word that has the power to transform and renew our hearts and our minds, that it might be aligned to your will. We're thankful for the grace of having your word to instruct us. We're thankful for your spirit that indwells us, that empowers us and enables us to 
live in this way, obediently, righteously, in a way that's pleasing to you. We know that we fall short of your perfect glory in so many ways, that we are undeserving of your love and your mercy. Yet, you're a God who loves. You're a God who is merciful. You're a God who is gracious. You're a God who is always good. So we thank you for revealing that to us. Would we see a greater picture of that as we go about the rest of our days, that we would see less of ourselves, more of you, and that our lives would be one of pursuing and striving after holiness and godly living because we know that it brings you glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.